Hello, this is Catherine Long, and this is the third episode of The Catherine Long Show. With me is my friend, KK, and I've invited him here to talk to me because I love our conversations, and he has spent years, decades even, researching something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the near-death experience. Um, and in fact, he's opened me up to a whole new world of NDEs, OBEs, and STEs, which are um, spiritually transformative experiences. And I think um, my intention for this conversation is to find something of value for you that gives you hope, that gives you inspiration, that helps you live a better life starting today. So Carl, oops. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. How are you feeling today? Better. Great. Now that this is clarified a little bit, you said the word hope, and that was kind of what how I backed into um, NDE studies. It was actually, I, I mean, I knew from some experience in my past that there was no such thing as death. And that sounds like a rumor, and you've got to sort that out for yourself. But anyway, that was not an unusual experience, but this whole business of being alive was... Um, Dying wasn't the problem. Living was the issue. And living positively, or ideally joyfully, and infection, infecting other people with one's joy. And I was the opposite of that. My, some friends nicknamed me Dark Cloud, Chief Dark Cloud, because uh, I was such a, a dour person. Anyway, I was living in India at the time, and in... Um, I was, used to visit Oroville, the, the um, city it, it is, or they're wishing for it to be a city, uh, that follows Aurobindo's teachings. And I befriended um, a house um, caretaker of one of the communities there. And she was a, a researcher in, in spiritually transformative experiences. And... I spoke to her and she suggested some books and I started reading them. Oh, let me try and get the sequence. Probably doesn't matter the sequence of things. One book was uh, Life Before Birth or Birth Before, Life Before Birth, which was of a lady psychologist or psychiatrist who regressed, I think, thousands of people and had a questionnaire for it. And even though half the people in the room would fall asleep and not be able to answer the questionnaire, she still had a large composite of material of people answering stuff where she took them through birth to what was going on before birth. And the thing somehow that I lit on, which was maybe the wrong thing, is that the highest percentage of people before birth that their process was that they did not want to return. And I went, yes, I can understand that. <laughs> Who would want to do this again? And no wonder they, we can't remember our past life. If we did, imagine how much more luggage that would be to our journey here. So anyway, but it was a different spin on the thing and there was a situation that everybody had one or two people who was helping them make the selection of a lifetime so that they could get the most ben spiritual benefit from it. 
and but I think that was the launching of it. And then she cited some NDE, no, it was PMH Atwater's books, which are, she collected thousands of testimonies or stories of NDEs. And it was really intriguing to me and provided some sense of hope. Now, why I didn't have hope given how much I had been given in life before that, I think it's like if you start out in life with a left on a left foot. If your childhood is kind of rocky, you start out in life with a left foot on your left foot, and you're never really—at least I was not—able to ever catch up and see things positively. And it always been, no matter what the circumstances. In hindsight, it looks to me like I really had not an especially difficult life, but that's relative to doing a lot of reading and seeing how arduous some other people's lives have been. But anyway, I returned to the States and I was communicating with her and I noticed some names of NDEs that she had on her blog and I looked them up and I read their material and then one thing led to the other where I just started reading more and more of this material of of the accounts that people who transitioned onto the other side, um, what they were saying that they encountered, and it was pretty, let's say the details varied, but the core elements was virtually completely the same, and it was very positive, and I'll maybe get into that in a bit. But um, anyway, I just, it became my research passion and and I think that the way I function is that I look for corroboration in reading and I go I read something and I go, well that's interesting but how do I know it's true I haven't had that experience but if you keep running if you find that same information coming from a variety of different sources in a spontaneous way it starts to have some credibility and the investigations were on my part spontaneous in that it was just, wow, this is interesting. Listen to this. And sometimes, often, some of the accounts would just open me up, open up my heart, and I would be, um, feel much more vulnerable from listening to these. And this just has kept going ever since. And it, in the process of it, I noticed that my dark cloud attitude, the clouds began to disperse for me and I started um, seeing life from the glasses half full instead of the glasses half empty. And that's just about it. You can, life has its ups and downs, shall we say. And if you focus on the downs, it looks like it's a big downer. But if you can retrain yourself in this, it seems to be a matter of attitude, somehow reprogram yourself um, you can focus on, on seeing that the glass is half full, seeing what's there. And it's a, it's a changing of attitude through an intensive kind of study. Because I think I had, as many people do, believing that if you got what you wanted out of life, if you got the money, the fame, the glory, the girlfriend, 
the whatever your um, whatever your idea of winning was in the material world, if you would get that, that never really satisfied. And things, and if you're up one day, eventually it you know things are going to crash or they're going to turn around, or you're going to see this thing that was wonderful today is not such a great prize. Like, uh, have you ever heard of what happens to lottery winners? Oh yeah. They end up worse off typically than yes. before they started. Mm -hmm. Thomas Sheridan actually, um, who's an artist um, and an author and researcher, he has his own uh, perspective on that, which is amazing. But yes, Can I you, have you wanna... um, Basically, he, he, he says that um, people haven't put forth the required energy to get that kind of a return. So there's like a, a, a vacuum. Mm -hmm. So okay. something for nothing. Mm. So that the energy hates it, or the the universe hates a void. So there's a void there to be taken care of. I don't know about that. I'd have to do more research, but certainly I've read enough accounts of people's lives kind of disintegrating. All of a sudden, yeah. friends come out of the woodwork that haven't yeah. contacted you in years and are hitting you up for money, yep. and all sorts of difficulties occur that you wouldn't have imagined. Um, and you think that, God, if I only had enough money, and money really makes life a lot easier, but having a life, but it, it um, everything is double-edged in life, it seems to me. Everything has an upside and a downside. And to think that something's all upside is, um, is naive, perhaps, or innocent at best. And to get that anything... Um, and also, as you're saying, that that anything that you don't earn, and it's tricky to say that because, for me to say that because in a way, all of life is a gift, an unearned gift. Mm -hmm. And given that particular perspective, I think I can still say that a lot of things that if you don't earn them somehow, they um, you don't appreciate them, or. Um, You know, I'm reminded, I don't know if this is relevant to anything, but there's a biblical quote that I'm going to maul over here. You were uh, raised Catholic? Yes. Yeah, Catholic. We, we, were raised, Catholic. we were raised Roman Catholic. We don't study the Bible, <laughs> or we uh, didn't, um, but all the other... But something like, if you, if you have gifts and you don't use your gifts, your gifts will turn around and destroy you. Mm. I don't know if you've heard that. Mm -hmm. That's a paraphrase yeah. of a proverb or whatever it is in the Bible and you know what is that saying I mean I remember hearing that and being kind of troubled by that because I always felt like I was uh, I had a pretty negative um, sense of how I've not how I've been gift the gifts that I've had that I've not used well or at all so that was troubling here's another troubling one you know from those who, to those who have, it shall be given. From those who have not, it shall be taken. Now you think about that and you go, wow, life's really unfair. And it appears to be that way. And that's, I don't know that I want to explicate that statement at this point because I'm, I have a feeling I'll be walking into quicksand because <laughs> I didn't plan that. But I have thought a lot about that yeah. and found reason in that and would suggest that but it's 
everything in a way that for you to, to for us to value things in a way we need to want them and want them enough to pay whatever it takes to, to get them. And what does it take to want things? Like with the NDE studies that I've done, I found like that I have run across the pot at the end of the rainbow for myself in terms of turning around my, my pessimistic view of life and really beginning to appreciate it as a gift that I've been given and an opportunity that I have to help people or to help myself to start with. I mean, if, if I'm not straight with myself, how can I possibly be of use to others? Really another phrase that got me, but I, I ran across this in the middle of my studies, was, a, was something that Anne Frank said, that happy people make other people happy. Such a simple, obvious thing, and yet so profound, and I realized that I was not going to be someone the way I was going. I was not making anybody happy. I was like a drag. I was like an anchor uh, dragging along the bottom of the sea in, in any relationship I was in. And when I read that, I really wept for, um, for in joy and sorrow at the same time for the obviousness and the wisdom that this 14-year-old girl had to say, to write something like that. But, um, pause. Yeah, NDEs for me were, I needed them to get out of where, where I was living at the time. And it was not a tremendous effort. It was, it was a pact with heart, according, relative to Carlos Castaneda's um, junction, injunction to follow only a path with heart and a path with heart will is not difficult to follow it will be joy to follow and that's what it was for me and I didn't really realize what was happening to me I was just doing what I enjoyed doing which was and I had no end no end of being able to listen to or listen to and or read and or think about these stories and it turned out to be the shovel that I that I was able to use to dig myself out of the hole that I was in but the thing is then in share I have found that in sharing wanting I have gone man this is wonderful stuff you know please read these things and very few people have that take about it. They'll go, well, that's interesting, but how do I know if it's true or not? You know, this just sounds like some story. It's like they, they're not able to appreciate it. And I've gone, well, how could you not see the value of this? It's because for whatever reasons, this is not the right thing at the right time for them. And it's like, you've got to see, you have to have the need and the desire and the thirst for something in order to find, in order to get something. And not everything's gonna, not the same thing is gonna work for everybody. We're all different people. We're all sparked by different aspects of life. And this happened to be the one that worked for me. But it's not gonna work for everybody else. But let me broadcast or let me present it to as broadly as possible 
and those who have who see the same possibility or those who have the same constitution as I have will pick up on it and, and run with the ball. And I think really that given the pervasive fear of death that our materialistic culture, our secular culture, our anti-spiritual culture has and the fear of death and the activities that people pursue in an attempt to distract themselves from that gnawing, perhaps. It's been a long time since I've had fear of death, so I'm guessing, but from that, when you're going to sleep at night and you stop all the chasing after things and you wonder about life and all you see is this blackness and you go, is this what's, you know, an unending nothingness and the hollow fear that occurs with that, that we don't want to face. So, and we're told the culture says, the, the, I don't know that it's really prevalent, it, but it seems to be in scientific materialism that there is a loud voice saying that, you know, what you see is what you get and there's nothing else. And, and um, unless you're willing to face your own fear, face your feelings and go, you know, really, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to buy this. Let me start looking around. I'm trying to remember when I first started looking around, I was thinking I was in art school and what happened to me is that I couldn't follow art because I needed to know whether life had meaning or not. This was a long time ago, I was still a teenager. I needed to know whether life had a meaning or not. And that, the, the, that need was more important than the need to be creative, to paint or sculpt or what people do. And I see artists and most people who are artists, they're cranking this stuff out because they have to do it. They need to be doing whatever they're doing whatever medium that they're working in. They need to be making music. They need to be writing poetry. It's something that they're compelled to do. If they don't do it, they're like feeling a whole, I don't know what they're feeling because I don't have that compulsion, but, but I see that the amount of energy and effort and expense and trouble that so many artists have, and have to continue with their art and the effortlessness of doing their art, it's work, but it's a work that engulfs them. I go, wow, they're doing what they need to be doing. And this thing is, is like, I needed to be reading and listening to these NDEs, but that may not be what you need to do. I don't know what you, I don't know who you are to start with, but much less what you need to do. I can, I'm only like a voice for something that has one thing that has worked for me probably the thing that's worked best. And I've been in two different spiritual traditions that I've been deeply involved with for many years. And the first one really saved my life because the person was the first person that I met that had really solid integrity and, and was impeccable in how they lived and was also a totally 
off the off the grid individual who I could never figure out what was going on, what they were up to. It was always like, what on earth? That was the, that was like maybe my unconscious mantra. What on earth is this guy thinking? And yet, this saved my life at that time because it derailed me from uh, less healthy activities that I was engaging in back at that time in my early 20s. And, but I see that, that, that I had that need to know truth, that that was, seemed to be inbuilt in me, that it could not be bought off by the distractions of the world, which I, I must say I didn't have. The, 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 the famous distractions of the world, um, golden women, were not flowing into my life, so I didn't have, I can't say I was really distracted by those things, but um, nonetheless, the need, of, the need to know what was true, whether life had meaning, what truth was, was greater than any other need that I could see around me. I guess it was, that was true really from a very early age. I don't want to tell my little stories of childhood and my conversations with God and wondering, asking God, how do you, why do you do, why is the world like this? Why is my life so screwed up? And, you know, if there's a God, it wouldn't be like this. And, and uh, I guess that was an early start. A lot of people have this. And I think maybe people grow, lose heart. They, they lose their complaint to God about life and they just go, Man, God, there's no God out there. If there were a God, it wouldn't be this messed up. So let me go get the, let me live for wine, women, and song, or wine, men, and song, whatever your preference is. And, and because there's nothing, there's no, there is no meaning, there is no God, there is nothing higher. And at this point, it's very sad to me because I look around and all I see is God anymore. You know, I mean, one of the ways that I see God is I go, why does this person, why is this person driven to cook food? Why is this person driven to fix cars and soup up cars? Why is this person driven to paint? Why is this person driven to have children and big families and take care of them? All these so many people, I think all the people who are driven to something, it doesn't matter what, they've got some passion. To me, I go, people are unique. We're, you know, I'm so thankful that there are people driven, some, that there are people capable of becoming bookkeepers and accountants. This would not be something I could, you could, I would definitely be wanting to check out of this life if I had to be a bookkeeper or an accountant. But there's people that can do that. Thank God. So I look around and I see the uniqueness. I see the variety of people's passions and interests and desires. And for me, somehow, that looks like a unique kind of individuality. Now, I can look at, I can read, and this is a little bit of a conflict, I can read research that says over 90% of our decisions are made unconsciously, and it appears so to me. It appears that most people are on a kind of mechanical automatic pilot 
based on their conditioning from their child from childhood and, and our culture and it's like really from when we're born on we're being trained in the belief systems of our culture it's like it's like the field that w that our psyche enters and, and this is this is a disaster because we have such a secularized culture there's no room for magic or mystery anymore. So anyway, I don't, I'm, I'm, I've gotten off track. Um, but part of this need to, I, I ran across, the, early on I ran across various spiritual teachings and eventually, pretty early on, I ran across the teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff, a Russian mystic who came to the West and brought um, a certain kind of teaching. And in studying his teachings, it came to me that if I could, or if people could live together, in live together, this would be changing the world because the world's problems. You know, looking at the world, the the difficulties that countries have with one another, wars, and all this disputing that goes on on a national level, is. A reflection of people not getting along with one another on a local level within families and communities so, I, so at that time I was a young man uh, out of the army and I tried to I did create several intentional communities that were called communes at that time and I thought naively that if you just got a bunch of people living in a house together that it would be all you know days of wine and roses we'd all get along and boy, was that sobering. I mean, after the first one, I mean, the things provided shelter. The buildings provided shelter for people, but the people they were providing shelter for had different, they were not as idealistic about why they were there as I was. They seemed to be there because they needed, at the time, the idea of collective living what did have some mystique, because this was the hippie years, of the mid and late 1960s um, where living collect communally had some mystique to it but I saw that it was really just a place for people to live um, economically and meet people of, of the opposite sex or the same sex whatever it was and, and start pairing up and that the vision that I had for it was not the vision that other people had. So I had to go repeat, repeat the same disillusionment a second time by creating a second community and seeing that it went the same way and realizing that I needed more information. I needed help. I needed to go and I had already visited a number of what I considered successful communities and didn't really wasn't able to extract why those were functioning and the idea that they were functioning is like you, you walk into something and it's working, but you would just see a slice in something and you don't know what it, what it was involved in getting there or where it's going and how it's going to be later, which is really the situation of our lives. When we think that the slice that we're in, right, the, the, slice, the way the slice is right now has some, is eternal. It's like we don't have a bigger picture. And that's, I'm glad I said that, that's what NDEs provide, a big picture view of life. 
And it's really important to have this big picture view of life, at least I found it so, so that the um, mundanity, the grinding process of going to work and all the bullshit that we have to crank through in life sometimes doesn't get you down that you go, okay, yeah, this is like this now, but it's not going to be like this all the time. When you read not just the mystical experience that the person had on the other side or whatever that experience is, most of them are exceedingly positive, but not all of them. But it's not that. that this experience occurred to this individual person who was, on, who was having this going on in their life. Their life was like this. And then their life changed and their life continued like that. A lot of people who report NDEs are reporting them very frequently many years after the incident occurred because the incidents are sometimes so shocking to them and often the people around you don't know what to make of it and it's a contradiction to their belief system that many people learn, especially children, not to talk about it. So most child experiencers park it, the experience, and wait, um, and just park it. And either many years later it's re-stimulated by something somehow, and you're able to revisit it and begin to unpack it. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, this bigger picture of things, I definitely got a bigger, many bigger pictures perhaps, that there is at least some kind of bigger picture to life. So again, I recommend, I would recommend Googling Amy Call, Amy A-M-Y Call, C-A-L-L, and you'll pull up YouTube talks of hers and transcripts of those talks. And that's probably the most profound, complex, and clearly presented NDE of any that I've read, so it's kind of all um, anticlimactic perhaps after her, but um, anyway, if you're only going to read one, do that, but if that's too much, there's certainly hundreds, perhaps thousands of YouTubes of near-death experiencers out there for you to, and they'll keep showing up once you do one, a whole bunch will appear on the list to the, on the column to the right. But um, anyway, this is if this is if you're curious about this, try out a few. See if it's your cup of tea. It may be. It may not be. I can't guarantee that it will be your cup of tea. It certainly turned out to be my cup of tea. So. Or do you have a question? I do have a question. You know, I have been really grateful for you. Uh, turning me on to these people. Amy Call, I, I agree, absolutely incredible, life-changing stuff. Um, Robin Lansong, her, her singing medicine um, brought me to tears the, the first mm -hmm. time I heard it and, and watched it, uh, watching her sing with her husband, John. Watching and, and listening to that, just that four or five minute, minute piece yeah. brought me to tears for, for the entire day. I, I would just listen to it or not. It would still be playing in my, in my mind and it, and it was just so mm, nourishing. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and I, and I wonder, you know, even though I didn't have that same kind of experience, her information, her change from the experience changes me. Um, you have those kinds of experiences when you listen to and when you read about some of these experiences? Yeah, it's like I can't go back to... It's like you get shifted a little bit. As Don Juan would say, your assemblage point gets shifted. And, and if it shifts a little bit, what that means, you could, you could say the assemblage point is your point of view, how you see the world. And it moves just a little bit. But if you keep shifting it a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, over time that became a whole different perspective for me. That became the glasses half full mm -hmm. instead of the glasses half empty. That became being able to see God in everything instead of seeing humanity's cupidity in everything. That's not stupidity, that's cupidity. But you could throw in stupidity also. Um, so again, it's, you know, one of the things that, that, has, that I've kind of pondered is that there's these things called, this thing called enlightenment. And the myth of, I call it the myth of enlightenment. And people have these dramatic, spiritually transformative experiences that really are pretty amazing, some of them. Some of them are fairly subtle. Some of them are really as dramatic as NDEs and as profound and as intense as NDEs. And that's not that common, but I've encountered some. But the thing becomes in this culture, in spiritual culture, the, this becomes a myth and it becomes part of the spiritual seeking and, and it, we have a whole let's say part, portion of the population that is disheartened by the kind of unconscious materialism that we see around us and is seeking for some sort of meaning as I was seeking for meaning and then if you get involved in spiritual things, there's certainly a lot of people around saying that this, the, the big spiritually transformative experience, an enlightenment experience, have that and everything's good after that. And that becomes a kind of seeking. And, it, and they all say that it's a futile form of seeking because you already are whole, perfect, and complete. And yet, at the same at the same time, there is this seeking for spirit. For you know, the, there's this carrot that people have in front of them. That this great, this grand experience that's to be had out there. And if I do the right things, if I do the right practices, whatever, I can I can have the big one. And and that's kind of like I've thought a lot about myself, I kind of in a way, well I was very fortunate, the teachers that I, that I encountered really played it down, they really down, there was no emphasis, nothing about that being presented. And my first guide said that you're here, you're not here to get anything for yourself, you're here to see what you have to offer to the bigger picture, what it is you have to contribute, and you're here to be, to learn to make yourself usable, learn to, uh, I'm, my paraphrasing is inadequate to how he presented it, but to become available 
to what's wanted and needed in the bigger picture. And there's nothing in it for you, personally. And that's a different orientation mm -hmm. than this orientation of, if you attain to this experience, it'll all be good then. So people come to this in this seeking modality as if there's something they're missing that they need to, if they get this experience. And that, that's a kind of spiritual materialism and that occurs for people. And a wonderful book by Chugyam Trumpa Rinpoche by that title, Spiritual Materialism, and how, the, how so much of the spiritual movement is devolved into various forms of spiritual materialism. And people don't have, say, the great, the great experience, but they can talk about who they've been with, you know, that they've been to the Himalayas, that they've met this teacher, that they studied at this monastery, you you have like these you um, you have your spiritual passport and it's been stamped by all by all the places that you've been as if that that amounts to anything. So that's a kind of form of of a, again of our secularization of this world that we live in, turning something that's a legitimate need of people the need to know truth into not everybody perhaps needs has that need but potentially the people who need to know truth where that gets co-opted into um, where you've been and who you've been with mm. so um, and the point getting back to that is that maybe you don't need to know and to have the big experience to become a trend become a a useful person in the bigger picture. Maybe you can do it as I did it in all these little increments, these little shifts of the assemblage point, little shifts of the teeny shifts of my point of view from it's all hopeless to yes, there's light out there, there's help out there. I mean, really one of the things that so many of the people who who cross over see is that there is always help, that there's always guides next to us, with us, doing everything that can be done to, which is very little in a way, they can't, they very rarely can act in a material plane. But um, at any rate, doing what is possible to be done and always by our side. Anyway, that's one of the stories that you read about repeatedly there that there is help. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen that there was help. Looking at my life, stepping back and looking at it, I realized that yes, there was always help. It didn't always look like help. I couldn't recognize it at the time, but I received a tremendous amount of help in my life. Some of the help was kind of rugged because you need to realize some things and um, disabuse yourself of some delusions that you have and sometimes that's difficult. But that still help. I uh, I have a little short story I'd like to share that yeah, is right. actually it's a it is about intervention in the material realm, and um, I was a I was in Vegas with my um, young son. He was in my little carrier, and it was New Year's Day. Everybody was still asleep. Um, it was something like six o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock. Everybody was still asleep. The the strip was completely empty except for um, 
plastic cups and, and papers and things strewn about. Um, there were no other pedestrians. There were no cars at all, except for the occasional car, you know, here and there um, <clears throat> in the distance. But it was really like a ghost town. And um, I was looking for a coffee place, and, you know, I'm up always early. So a it was coffee. just a co coffee, coffee place. Yep, like a Starbucks. And I was walking with my son, and I saw way up ahead, there was a, a figure on the sidewalk, and he was... It looked like he was stumbling. And I got closer to him and he uh, called out to me and he reached out for me and he was a young man in his early 20s probably. And he said that he thought he was gonna die. And he had complete panic on his face. And I think he said something like he'd done a bunch of drugs or I don't know if he said that or if I just you know could recognize it. But this, this feeling overcame me and it was this calm, this comfort. And I found myself saying to him, you know, you're gonna be fine, you're not gonna die. And I just gave him this smile and this comfort. It just felt like a wave moving through me. And at the same time, out of nowhere, as this man grabbed me and started to fall toward the sidewalk, I gently guided him down. Before he reached, hit the head to the ground, there was another man who came and put his hands under his head. He was a paramedic. He had an ambulance parked at the curb. It came out of nowhere. This guy and this ambulance came out of nowhere. And he actually was able to hold the man's head. And he said to me assuredly, I've got this now, ma'am. And, and I just kept going on my way, and he took over. There's no way for me to explain to you how joyful that event made me. I was walking on on air. Um, it didn't make sense except for this was some sort of a divine intervention. Um, and, and I don't know what even the divine is, to tell you the truth. I don't know what God is. I have some ideas, but they're just ideas. I have some hopes. Um, I just know that my experience in life and in my near-death experience is that I am love. I am from love. I am. That's the only thing that's real. All of this is like a dream. And even though it's a dream, it doesn't diminish its importance, its beauty, its relevance, its meaning. Um, in fact, in, in some ways, it enhances it. That this is temporary. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a ride, in a way. It's just a ride, but it is so essential and there's there's beauty and there's suffering and I and I used to really rail against that last part that suffering yeah. and struggle with it and I wonder if you would share with me what you found about the value of or the role of a, of, of suffering yes can I can I accomplish this <laughs> because suffering when you're in the midst of it really doesn't appear to have anything attractive to it and it isn't there is nothing attractive to suffering when you're in it and I wish I had Gibrams the prophet because he states it so eloquently in there but it's like as you are how deeply you are carved is how high you can soar something like that if you don't know suffering like life has joy in suffering and 
you, you won't you can't really know joy in a way unless you've known suffering and in the midst of suffering it's especially if it's prolonged depression where it becomes chronic and it becomes a, a, a chemical state in your brain there's really very little to recommend that um, I don't know it's it's like I find that to I can't give suffering any kind of, of um, I can't say that it's good other than in a form of hindsight and I feel it would be disingenuous for me to say to, to speak about it as being valuable and there's enough people who suffer and aren't able to make you know that it seems needless so suffering is not a great selling point I don't think any teachers I mean suffering is what's going to happen and to accept it as a part of life is useful but it's certainly not a, anything I want to use as a I don't want to answer your question as it's any form of selling point because it isn't you avoid suffering do everything you can to avoid suffering and good luck with that but avoiding suffering it's kind of like, a, I'm thinking this is a thin line there because what we, everybody's trying to avoid, they're not really trying to avoid suffering. They're trying to avoid feeling the pain of life. And that's different. Jung said that all neurosis is a function of our, um, the unwillingness to feel legitimate pain. And the kicker with that is legitimate pain. And what is legitimate pain? I won't try and answer that. But life seems to have enough circumstances in it that are difficult. And nobody, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants to be happy. We're all looking to be happy. And if you, were, if you could have happiness all the time, it would, it would become dry. It, it wouldn't be happiness anymore. You only know happiness in, a con in contrast to suffering. Those two things are part of, the, that's the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And everybody wants happiness, and you're not gonna have it without also having suffering. They come together. Something I, I learned about suffering um, from my near-death experience, and, and uh, I've, I've seen it in other places, where the body actually is part of us, but it isn't exactly us. And we have the ability to unconsciously or even maybe superconsciously uh, separate from the body in times of great trauma, in, in times of great suffering. Um, when I was in my car crash, I was immediately uh, separated from the body. I didn't feel all of the pain of the of the fracturing of the spine and crushing of the pelvis and all that stuff. I didn't feel that. Um, I observed it happening. And I feel that there's a certain amount of grace involved, if I could use that word, when it comes to suffering. I know that other near-death experiencers have talked about how they were removed from the body at times of suffering um, in a way that was very merciful. Um, and then the suffering continues 
when you choose or or sometimes don't have the choice to return back to the body that's when the pain comes back yes but that's based on a, a choice or a change in circumstances but I know that for people who die traumatically uh, that they have an experience where they might be disoriented but they're not connected to they're not feeling that trauma in fact there's a immediate relief from any kind of suffering emotional mental physical all of them are just sensations is it just sensations or is it all three well most of them well, well I can't speak for most of them actually yeah yeah well for in my own experience um, I was really stressed out at the time of the accident I was really confused worried um, and in, in, in I would have been in physical pain but in the space where I was in, I was completely comfortable, completely separated from any sort of concern for my mm-hmm. for my life as I knew it. Um, my family, my hopes, my dreams, all of that. I was completely disconnected from that. Um, so, and I've and I've read of it and, and seen it yeah. and heard it from other people too. That that sense of detachment and peacefulness and contentment um, and and relief from any suffering. It's like the suffering was just um, an illusion. And that seems hard to swallow for a lot of people, and I really probably wouldn't have appreciated hearing that um, some years ago uh, when I had quite a resistance to suffering, quite a superstition around suffering, this great mistrust that something must be terribly wrong for this to be allowed in this reality. That's a tough one because, you know, you and I, we live in privilege, relatively speaking. There's many, you know, we, we're having this conversation and it's, I hear it, it's kind of like somebody, I, I hear a, a, some part of me, a voice in me saying, yeah, you guys can have this great conversation, but there's people in places in the world that are being tortured, murdered, whatever, that they don't have, they doesn't, there's no happy ending for these people. You know, their lives are short and miserable and, and meaning, seemingly meaningless. And I really don't have an answer. Some number of NDEs see a bigger picture where they say nothing unlawful happens. Everything that happens is as it should be. And, but it's, you've got, you've got to somehow, if you want to, you being the listeners, um, let that gnaw at you so that you either throw your hands up in despair and, and, or try and do things via social change, via helping as you can, or um, start doing the kind of investigations that, um, that I've done and Catherine's done. So do you think that it's possible that suffering isn't um, required for this existence, for our existence, for our growth? There seems to be a spectrum of that. Mm-hmm. And some people seem to have it that's, all, that's the, the majority of what's going to happen to them. And other people will have where there's very relatively little of it in their life or it doesn't come along till later in life.
some people have a lot of it at the beginning and then they won't have a lot of it later. And I think that there's this difference that people, there's such a variety of karmas, if you call that, there's such a variety of human experience. Some people are born with, they're, they're born with so much, so many gifts of one form or another. And some of those people who have that um, do great in the world and others self-destruct in spite of all the seeming gifts, advantages that they've had in life. And other people who have, who are born in really horrific circumstances never get out of it and are crushed by them and other people somehow manage to escape and, and have a meaningful life in spite of it. And this is all so over the, this is so different, there's so much different possibility in this that it seems like I've chosen to see, to f I've found a way to see meaning in suffering, to find the meaning, the, the bigger picture, a bigger picture that I've been shown, that I looked for and found, showed me that the apparent suffering is not meaningless. And that's something that I've come to through my own process. And I, as I speak, I think of where it, it could sound very unbelievable and disingenuous on my part to be saying that, that it's all good. And I can say that it's all good based on, maybe it's faith at this point, or belief. Belief is not the same as faith. But maybe it's faith that I've come through a life that's brought me to that. And somebody, a younger person perhaps listening to this will go, no, I don't know about that at all. You know, I don't, you know, they haven't had the experiences that I've had. They haven't had the education that I have, I've had. So you need to, or if you need to, if you want to, do your own search in life. And a metaphor that I've used about um, this journey that, let's say for drugs, I can use it for drugs. I've taken drugs, and drugs have, in a way, brought me from here to the Portola in Tibet, to the top of the world, where the skies are clear and you can see forever. And it's like being brought to the Portola being transported there on a flight where you take an airplane in New York and you fly and you land. They don't have a, an airfield at that elevation, but anyway, you land as far up as you can and take the bullet train up the rest of the way, of which people get to, the bullet train takes you through so much elevation so fast that some people step out of the bullet train and die because, because of the, uh, the traumatic uh, experience of going from lower elevation to that high an elevation suddenly but anyway the thing is you can do that and there you're at the top of the world but that's different than making the journey and and traveling through all the different countries and the different cultures and all the things that you learn and that you can learn in your travels that you have to learn in your travels to survive know when the weather is changing and what weather is coming along and when you need to find shelter so you don't get caught in, in disastrous weather. Learn to learn languages as you travel through countries. 
learn different skills to be able to earn the money while you're traveling to continue your journey so that when you come to the end of your journey, you've, it's not been the end of the journey that was important, but all the experiences that you had along the way that you've been paying for this, the end of this journey, paying for this so-called enlightenment or this transformational event through all the, all the variety of forms of, of uh, learning that you've gone through, some harsh, some pleasant. Pleasant things hardly are ever a form of learning. They're like... Oh, well, I beg to differ. Oh no, my I want to hear this. Wow. I you know, when found, I, I mean, they're like, great, this is happening, but what did I learn here? Oh. I learned that I could get stoned, and if I get stoned, sure. it's all good. But then I come down. What's the value of that? Well, just a really small example that comes immediately to mind. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in the 70s, thankfully. Um, I remember some of the best memories of my life were staying with my grandparents, um, both sets of grandparents, um, but I'm particularly thinking about my father's parents. And they live uh, in Michigan. My, uh, my grandmother just passed, but my grandpa still lives there. And it's just a beautiful, quiet town. Um, where people know each other, people have known each other, families have known each other for generations. It's really idyllic in a lot of ways, or it was. And I would just sit under this particular weeping willow and let the day go. I would be so content to be... This was from the time I was seven to the time I was 13. I would spend summers with my grandparents. And I would uh, be under this weeping willow, and everything was perfect. Um, I didn't need anything. I didn't need any entertainment or water or food or company. Um, I was so connected to everything and so grateful. So grateful for the breeze, the birds, the grasses. Um, and I didn't want or need anything. And those were some of the greatest lessons of my life and nothing really happened. You were in being, but I don't see how that was a lesson. That was like a gift. A gift. You were able to fall into being. You were just being instead of becoming, instead of doing and accomplishing, having, doing and having. Well, it was you certainly a lesson, though. It was a reminder, because here we are in this, in this dream. But was that useful? Could you go back to that? Did you, was that a reference point for you later times in your life? You know, when, when things seemed, throughout my life, when things have seemed chaotic and not to make sense, when things have seemed fragmented and broken, I could always go back to those times. And then once I had my near-death experience, that was more the anchor for me of, mm-hmm. of what's real, what's, what's meaningful, what's important um, for me. So until that time, it was always the willow tree and, and that opportunity to just be um, that was my sort of um, my, my happy place you know that uh, my, my my anchor and so maybe it's not a lesson in the same way that some it was part of your experience and all of our experiences 
valuable and to be cherished, all of it, including mm -hmm. the arduous arguments with people and the accidents and the physical pain mm -hmm. and, and the losses and all of it. But boy, I don't know. It just doesn't... That I don't see being, events of being, as having... as being learning. They're just gifts. And I'm not... I, I guess maybe I didn't have that as a child. I don't remember any such thing for myself, so I don't have a reference for that. So I go, well, that's interesting. I'm glad to hear that you had that. I hope everyone has that. Mm -hmm. So how do you see how do you see people as individuals and also part of this larger being? How do you see individualism? Do you see us all as being unique? separate beings on our own journeys? Do you see that as a part of our beingness? How do you see things from a larger point of view? I'm curious because I... I well, well, one, I'm not having a larger point of view at this moment. <laughs> um, I'm just in my head trying to figure things out. Mm. And um, let's see, we, everybody is born into a particular circumstance and we're born everybody's innately different, inherently different. And that's what I said before, that somebody want, somebody has a passion for sculpting and another person has a passion for long distance running. And, and I go, well, that's a kind of uniqueness. That's, but that, you know, why, why are people like that? I think perhaps many people have passions. I think to have a passion is an upside and a downside because if you the passion makes you have to fulfill it, but if you don't have to, but if you don't, if you're not following your passion, you're going to be tortured. Um, has been my experience. But there, let's say, there is a potentiality for uniqueness, and it's not this potentiality isn't necessarily fulfilled. And when we're speaking like this, we're probably tending to focus more on the times and the ways that we, you and I, have fulfilled it or the people who have fulfilled it. But I can also look around me and see many people who aren't, whatever their, if they have a passion, whatever that might be, a, unique, a uniqueness, that it isn't being followed up for them and that they're mostly byproducts of their culture and that their choices are made mostly out of fear rather than out of going for whatever they're excited about. Mm -hmm. And they're choosing, often choosing safety and fear, out of fear, which, and there is no safety, there is no such thing as security. That's an illusion. You know, we, we go along thinking that tomorrow is going to be like today, uh, which was like yesterday, how often do we get, very rarely in life do we get a surprise, but we can get some really shocking surprises one day where tomorrow, when tomorrow comes and it's drastically not like yesterday and everything's turned upside down. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, there, uh, what was the question? Well, I was talking about about your take on individuality because oh, I, for okay. me, um, it's really slippery. You know, I, I, uh, 
you saw that article um, about the identity yeah. being fluid, being changeable. Um, mm -hmm. And so many people have this idea that you have to have this fixed way of being, this fixed way of seeing things, this even a fixed kind of appearance. In, in Hollywood, celebrities, I mean, Christy Brinkley looks like she did when I was a kid. You know, there's this idea that you have to have this fixed personality, this is fixed self. And I don't buy it, at least it hasn't been my experience. Some days I wake up and I have to remember who, you know, where am I at in the play kind of a thing. Um, and I have always viewed myself more as a process. That's, say that again, that's, that's um, hallelujah, because <laughs> that's really what we are, we're processes. And it's amazing that you can see it, that you've seen yourself as a process that's closer, in my opinion, that's closer to the truth of things, but not necessarily a potential that's reached by everyone because people have an idea that this is success. Success is looking a certain way, driving a certain thing, having things appear a certain way, and they stop. The, the process becomes significantly shrunken and smaller, the process potential of who they are because of this, because in a way it's kind of selling out to the images of our culture, the images of success and fewer the people that don't have that. And also, we are habituating, we are, we are capable of being habitual. Our body-mind system is habituated, like just like we become habituated to, to um, substances. This habituation process is much more pervasive than people can imagine. We always start brushing our teeth from the same, at the same part, of, in the same part of our mouth. So much of our life, we put on our shoes, the right shoe first or the left. And so much of, of how we live is habitual and it's useful to start observing that to see how habitual we are mm -hmm. and, start, and start breaking that up perhaps if you have a mind to do that. And there is a, I, I would say there's a potential for individuality, there is a potential for freedom, but it's mostly not recognized and chosen it has to be it has to be in a way seen and chosen if we don't see and choose we're going to go down the road of mechanicality of, of following the prescriptions of life the prescriptions that parents your parents gave you the prescriptions that come from all over the place as to how life should be lived and to live an authentic life is something that it doesn't happen by itself. It's something that has to be chosen. It's a choice and not an easy choice to make. Everything, there's a great quote of, I wish I had come prepared, there's a great quote of E.E. E. Cummings, there's nothing more difficult that you'll have to do than choose, than, you know, you choose to be yourself. God, I'm just gonna maul this beautiful poem, poetic statement of E.E. E. Cummings about Everything and everyone in the world wants you to be a certain way, and there's nothing more harder that you'll ever do than choose to be yourself. And but you 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 can't choose to be yourself until you've begun to see how much of what you consider yourself isn't really a real choice. How much of it is mechanical? How much of it is unconscious 
activity that we aren't awake enough for to recognize that it's all mechanical activity. And you have to deeply see and feel that the extent of that of our my mechanicality. I have deeply I have needed to deeply see and feel the extent of my mechanicality and the extent of my the lack of choices that I've made in life to and feel and feel that when, when I say feel that is feel it's not pleasant to see that this person that you just kind of glibly think of as me is nothing but a bunch of unconsciously programmed habits that have accumulated in the body-mind machine. And you've got to really feel that before, and the pain of that, before you can begin to start choosing something differently, before you can begin to start choosing away from what you thought was a choice before. And often, this, our so-called choices are really taking the easy way out. Instead of choosing to disagree, we choose to agree with a lot of societal things that society sells us because we don't want to make the effort of the struggle of choosing otherwise. And maybe you can't explain it or stuff. And also, the, it's equally mechanical to rebel, to do the choices that seem like let's say, I'm choosing to be unique because I'm piercing my nose and wearing a certain uh, hairstyle or something. When you're rebelling, you're acting just, it's, it's the flip side of the same coin, but it is the same coin. You're just going, I hate the way society is, I'm going to be different, and you adopt some things. Different isn't your appearance. Different isn't in your choice of recreational drugs. Different isn't perhaps in your choice of attitude. I don't know, you have to find this out for yourself. You have to see what your own, you have to be really seeing where you're at in a very sober way and there's no support, very little support for this. I'd say the support is to find people who are, who are genuinely living what a life that you aspire to live, that you would aspire to live and look at their lives carefully and see if that's true. I don't know, in a way, NDEs, what they came through, what came through the other side for them has been um, a support for this for me. And sometimes I wonder, I go, are you using this as an escape from life? Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, this thing of, of identity and individuality is, is, as you said, a slippery slope. That's a good way to put it. And to know that to know what it is to be authentic, I would say to feel all your feelings, and that's <laughs> can be pretty pretty difficult. There's um, some feelings. There's just no upside. Loneliness. I think loneliness is an inherent part of the human condition, and we do an awful lot to run away from the from loneliness and the essential essentialness of this in your life and we may run from relationship into relation to another relationship because we're running away from feeling loneliness and that's just a part of the human condition while we're here we really are alone nobody's going to die for us so 
anyway, feel your feelings, and that's one of that's a feeling that we run away from. A feeling of there's a lot of feelings that are unpleasant that we don't want to feel. That we do a lot of things in life as distractions from feeling those feelings, mm -hmm. and you've got to feel those feelings because that's the beginning of an authentic life. At least it was for me. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, you say that we are alone, and 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 while we are in in a very primal way, very real mm -hmm. way, um, we are also guided. We are also never alone. Correct. And, yeah. and I found that there are so many instances where I think it's, it's Tim Freak, the philosopher and author, um, F-R-E-K-E, who, who uses the word um, paralogical thinking where one thing is true and its opposite is also true yeah, and right. there's no conflict I and agree, so totally. while we are one we are also many there's no conflict there right um, yes and totally you know while this is a dream it's also real yes there you know and um you know so i think that the individual there's something very sacred very precious about that um and uh, something um illusory about it and there's, there's no possibility of ever truly being alone. It just really seems like that. I completely agree. And, and some of this is like learning to think. Mm -hmm. Our society trains us into either or thinking. Either this is true or that's true. And they both can't be true, but they both are true and more. Either or plus yeah. is more what is yeah. closer to truth than this, than we're alone. And, but yes, you're right. I, I go, yes, we're alone. I'm only going to, I die alone. I'm born alone and I die alone. But I've never been out of, but there's never been a separate me in a manner of speaking that's disconnected in this idea. That all the spiritual, not all, many spiritual traditions say that, that the sense of I is an illusion. And that's, and this is a, a real thing. I've, I've had conversations with friend about this who says that there is no separate self and they go yes that's true but yet there's this unique body mind thing that's going through a unique collection of experiences that no every single body mind is going being is going through a particular set of experiences and that's going to be in it that is eternal and they've got some sense of I However illusory it is, it's still their sense of I. Mm. And it's not to be discarded for this ideal that there is no separate self. Yes, there is no separate self. And there's a kind of, you might say, if you get shifted into the left brain suddenly and radically, then you're in the unitive state where there's no labels to anything and everything is one whole, interconnected whole. And yes, that's true. But right now that's not where i live i'm mostly in the right brain i live in a world where where um, you have an, a different name than me and if somebody yells my name i respond to it mm -hmm. i live in a way where it appears that there are differences but that's an appearance i i don't know if this is um, if this is true or not but it's it seems likely you never know. it you seems never likely know. for for yeah. me um the idea that nothing that is loved is ever lost. Hallelujah, and yes. So, I agree. So for me, that's very real. Um, 
but how, why is, I have the same thing, <laughs> nothing, that's the only thing that's real is love. And once something is loved, it's, it's eternally immortal. Love is eternal, the only thing that's, that's eternal and immortal. So we're both on that page. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody has it, I don't know how you got there. I don't really even know. I remember when, when I got it, it was very subtle. Mm. One Late one night when I was walking my son in the middle of the night so that my wife could sleep. And it just struck, the truth of that struck me and I knew it tacitly, but that was subtle. And I can't, how we know this is how we know it. And it's real for us, but it, whatever serendipitous event made this real for you in the way that it did for you and for me in the way that it did for me, I can't, if it hadn't, doesn't happen to you, it's a myth, it's a rumor. I don't know who, we're, who if anyone's gonna to listen to this. Yeah, I, uh, I guess we're gonna get kicked out of the library here. Well, I think that's a, that's a beautiful place to, to leave this. Um, yeah. I find out for yourself. Find out for yourself if that's uh, true, that nothing loved is ever lost. Thank you, KK. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for for doing for um, challenging me like this. My pleasure. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again. <laughs>